Okay, I'm pulling away from the parking spot of my daughter's high school. You know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so today is another of my series, 20 Years and 20 Podcasts. So I've gotten up to 2008. Getting closer and closer. Okay, so this, uh, the series, for those that have never heard it, I'm going through each year of magic and explaining everything that happened in that year in a little more detail. Okay, so we're going to start January 19th is the pre-release. February 1st is the release for Morning Tide. So Morning Tide was the small set that followed up Lorwyn. Um, so this year, uh, 2008, we had tried something brand new. Normally, we had done a large set in the winter, uh, in like October, and then in January, February, we did a small set, and then in April, May, we did a small set. But this year... We did something different. So what happened was Bill Rose had wanted to do... uh, Every other year at this point, we were doing a core set, and we'd come to the decision that we wanted to have some set, a fourth set on the the, every other year that there wasn't a core set. Um, And the previous two years earlier had been cold snap. that didn't quite go well. So I had said to Bill, I said, Bill, next time um, you want to have a fourth set, talk to me. I'll make it work. I'll make it, I'll make it an ingrained part of what's going on. Not an afterthought, but it'll be part of the whole year. And so Bill came to me and said, okay, I want to do it. You said you can make this happen. So I came up with the idea of having two mini blocks. And what that meant is two blocks that each had a large set and then a small set. So you'd have a large set in winter, small set in the, in the, sorry, large set in the fall, small set in winter, large set in the spring, small set in the summer. Sound familiar? Um... Yes, the, the two-block paradigm. This is kind of the precursor to it. Um, but anyway, so uh, I convinced him to do this. The way we did it is we did two blocks that were thematically connected. So Lorwyn took place in a world that there's an event called the Aurora that changed everything, and then it became Shadowmoor. But they were two flip sides of the same world, the light and dark version of the same world. Uh, and Morning Tide was the follow-up to, to Lorwyn. Um, and the, the code names at the time were Peanut, Butter, and Jelly. But we had a secret fourth set, and we didn't want people to know it was a fourth set. So we called the fourth set Donut. So it was Peanut and Butter, that was one set. Jelly and Donut was another set. But if you heard Peanut, Butter, and Jelly, you assumed it was a normal three-year three set. Sometimes we'd be sneaky with our code names. Um, okay, so Morning Tide, um, Lorwyn was a tribal block. Uh, it introduced eight new tribes, and all of them were races. Well, Morning Tide came along and introduced five classes. Soldiers, shaman, wizards, warriors, and rogues. Um, the idea was, um, previously we had, when we had done tribal, that was prior to, Onslaught was prior to the race class, which we had started in uh, Mirrodin right after Onslaught was finished. Uh, and so we were trying to take advantage of the fact that we had a race class. And so I came up with this lovely idea of making this matrix where the first set cared about race and the second set cared about class. And then, oh, the combinations. Oh, and the combinations there were. The, what ended up, the problem ended up being is there was so much going on and so many things to pay attention to. And every creature usually had a race and a class. So it, it just got really, really complicated. In fact, um, the previous year, 2007, was... Um, the, the end of the time spiral block, which taught us about trying to keep the complexity, the comprehension complexity lower. And Lorwyn block taught us all about the problem of uh, board complexity. That what happened was when you played Lorwyn with Morning Tide and you would look at the board, there was so much going on, so many possibilities, that just a lot of players were like, couldn't, 
process all the stuff that was happening. And it was too much for them. Uh, so anyway, Morning Tide was led by a man named Paul Sotosanti, who used to work at Wizards. Um, this was his first and only lead. Um, he actually had been brought on. We had a project called Gleemax at the time, where we had a digital undertaking. Paul ended up getting very involved in that. Um, didn't end up quite being successful as we hoped. Um, but anyway, this was Paul's, Paul's lead. Um, Mike Turnian was the lead developer. Uh, Morning Tide had 150 cards, 60 commons, 40 uncommons, 50 rares. Um, remember, at this point, there was no Mythic Rares, although as we'll see later in the year, 2008 is the year of Mythic Rares, just not yet. Um, so Morning Tide was definitely... Oh, Morning Tide introduced three mechanics, Prowl, Reinforce, and Kinship. Prowl was a, um, a mechanic that allowed you to cast spells cheaper, it was a price reduction mechanic, if you would hit your opponent with a rogue. So it was a rogue mechanic. So rogue was one of the supported classes. So the idea is, if the, the sneaky rogues came in and could hit you, you could get things cheaper. Essentially, um, the spells kind of were like saboteur abilities. If your opponent hit you, then you got them for cheaper. Reinforce was a variant on cycling that allowed you to trade in cards for plus one, plus one counters. Um, and then kinship was this mechanic where you looked at the top card of your library during your upkeep, and if you matched things and stuff, stuff happened. Um, none of these mechanics were particularly stellar. Um, they all had the issues. Morning Tide definitely was a set that didn't quite, uh, didn't quite click the way we were hoping it would. Uh, even Lorwyn, one of the problems in general was people liked tribal, but we went, we went a little too high on the tribal. It was a little too much what we call on rails, that when you draft, it's like you had to pick one of the eight, the eight, uh, races. Um, anyway, uh, Morning Tide, like I said, was, and also both Lorwyn and Morning Tide were very sunny and bright, and instead of people killing each other, they were throwing fish at one another, and it was a little lighter. Uh, the world didn't really go over super well. Okay, next, February 15th through the 17th, Pro Tour Kuala Lumpur. Uh, it was a Lorwyn booster draft, and the winner was a Hall of Famer that had already won multiple times before. Yes, John Finkel defeated Mario Pasca Pascoli of Italy. Um, so there's only a handful of, um, I think there's only three of them, uh, that have, I believe, um, only a handful of people won a Pro Tour at a point where they were already in the Hall of Fame. Um, I believe it's John Finkel, Brian Kipler, and Pat Chapin, if my memory's correct. My memory might be correct, so don't quote me on that. But uh, anyway, uh, Kuala Lumpur, by the way, is where, um, uh, interestingly, John Finkel came in second at an Invitational, defeated by his friend um, uh, Chris Pakula. So that's where Chris Pakula won in Kuala Lumpur. So I, I did not go to this Pro Tour. We're, we're now to the point where I don't go to most Pro Tours. I go to the world, but not the normal Pro Tours. So I'd been to Kuala Lumpur when I went to the Invitational, but I did not go to this Kuala Lumpur. Okay, April 19th was the pre-release. May 2nd was the release of Shadowmoor, a.k.a. Jelly. So it was 301 cards, 121 commons, 80 uncommons, 80 rares, and 20 basic lands. Um, once again, Mythics aren't quite there yet. Um, I was the lead designer. Aaron Forsyth was the lead developer. Um, we were trying to go dark, trying to make the, the mirror of Lorwyn. So Lorwyn was all about tribal. Shadowmoor was us going to the, to the wall on hybrid. We had introduced hybrid. I would come up with it during Ravnica design, and we teased it a little during Ravnica design. But I really thought that it could, it could serve a larger purpose. And so in Shadowmoor, half the packs were hybrid. 50% of the cards were hybrid, very close to 50%. Um, 
and uh, it uh, hybrid is probably a little better served in smaller doses is what we learned. Part of the problem is there's just only so much overlap that the colors have. And the way what hybrid's supposed to do is say, oh, black can do this, red can do this. Well, you can cast this for black or red. Um, the problem was, because we were doing so many of them, we had to stretch the boundaries a little bit of where the overlap was. And so there definitely are more cards in that set that are kind of not true hybrids. They break the rules a little bit, that they're more gold cards than hybrids. Um, and the lesson there is that you can have too much of a good thing. Hybrid's fun. Hybrid, hybrid effect, is a very popular mechanic, but it's better served in small doses. Okay, so we introduced a bunch of mechanics. Uh, there was Persist, Wither, Conspire, and the Untap symbol. So Persist was a mechanic that said, when it cre- oh, so one of the things this world did is it used minus one, minus one counters rather than plus one, plus one counters. One of the rules in design is you can have one kind of counter that goes on creatures, but we li- limit you to one. Normally, it's plus one, plus one counters. Every once in a while, it's something else. This time, it was minus one, minus one counters. So what happened was, Persist was a mechanic that said, when you die, um, if you don't have a minus one, minus one counter on you, you come back with a minus one, minus one counter. So it's kind of a regeneration sort of ability where if a creature dies, it comes back a little bit weaker, and then if it dies a second time, then it's gone. Um, Wither was a mechanic that damage done by the creature was done in the form of minus one, minus one counters. We would later use Wither technology to create Infect in Scars of Mirrodin. That's a few years down the road. Conspire was a mechanic. Conspire actually was made by the development team, not by the design team. It allowed you to tap two creatures um, to fork, to copy the effect. Um, so there are effects that if you tap two creatures as sort of a kicker effect, you could then get a second copy of the spell and pick new targets for it. Um, and the untap symbol was quite what it sounds like. Uh, they were cards that, if they were tapped, part of using them required you to untap them. So in order to use them, you first had to get them tapped. Um, the untap symbol sounded great in, in theory, and we were doing the, you know, the mirror version of Lorwyn, so it was kind of a neat idea. But it confused people. A, even though it was inverted, most people read it as a tap symbol, unless, you know, it's contrasted against a tap symbol, um, which we didn't do in the same card, other than Snow Mercy, which was a holiday card. Um, and it just was mind-melting for a lot of people. The idea that I had to untap as a cost was just somehow really hard for a lot of people to wrap their brains around. It created a lot of what we call onboard tricks for, like, you'd walk into, like, you would attack, going, they can't do anything, and they would untap this creature with the untap ability. You're like... Oh, it was right there. I didn't see it. I feel really dumb. So anyway, the untap symbol. Persist was a success. Wither was a success. Conspire, less so. Untap, not a success. Okay, May 23rd through the 25th was Pro Tour Hollywood. Uh, it was a standard uh, Pro Tour. Charles Gindy of the United States beat Jean Roos of Germany. Um, once again, I don't know a lot. Once we get to these later years, right, I just wasn't there. I don't know too much about it. Um, I do know that... Uh, uh, there, one of the things that we always try to do was figure out how to name our Pro Tours. Now we name them after the expansions, but in the day we'd name them where we were. And I remember this one, they decided they were going to be closer to Hollywood rather than Los Angeles. And we had a lot of Pro Tour Los Angeles, but this one was Pro Tour Hollywood. But anyway. Okay, July 12th was the pre-release. July 25th was the release of Eventide, um, a.k.a. Donut. 180 cards, 60, 60, 60. 60 60 common, 60 uncommon, 60 rares. There's a period in time that was our small sets. They were 60, 60, 60. Um, anyway, I was the lead designer and Matt Place was the lead developer. Um, the interesting story about this, by the way, was I was not supposed to be the lead designer. Um, somebody else was offered the lead, somebody who had never led a uh, design before. 
they were all excited for it. And then right before it started, they got cold feet. And they said, you know what? I don't think I can do this. And they asked if they could bow out. Which is the only time anyone's ever done that. I've never, ever. It's the only time where I've given someone a design lead and they then said, oh, I, I don't want to do it. Um, so I had no one else to take over, so I ended up taking over. Little, also, a little, uh, little crazy stat here. So Shadowmore. So Shadowmore Design. So it came out in 2008, which means we started design two years earlier, probably 2006. So since 2006, since the design of Shadowmore, here's a crazy stat for you. I have been lead designer of a set consecutively since uh, 2006. Uh, since Shadowmore, I have there, every week I walk into the office. I'm lead designer of a set that has been true consecutively since Shadowmore. A little crazy. Uh, does mean I've got to do a lot of a lot of design work, which is good because I like it. Um, okay, the mechanics were Chroma and Retrace. Chroma, you guys might know better as Devotion. Um, we had done Tease Chroma the year before in uh, Future Sight. I liked the mechanics, something Aaron had come up with uh, for Fifth Dawn, I believe, and I saved it, and then I teased it in Future Sight, and we ended up using it here. Um, we didn't quite, we didn't make the best cards with it, and we didn't quite use it as effectively. I really thought it had more potential. I ended up bringing it back in Theros as Devotion, and went over to Gangbusters in Theros. So, a good example of how you can execute poorly on a mechanic, and that sometimes. You know, the execution, it has a lot to do with whether or not the mechanics is a success. Uh, retrace allowed you to um, trade in uh, lands for these cards with, with Retrace. You could discard a land from your hand to play them out of the graveyard, essentially, or to turn a land in your hand as a copy of the things in your graveyard. Um, it allowed you to sort of uh, make basic land, or make land later in the game have other values. Uh, I liked Retrace. It was a little complex in the board state. Um, and it had a little bit of a repetition of play, but I, I think it was cool. Okay, August 29th was the very first From the Vault. So in 2007, I explained how we were just on the cusp of doing, starting to see the explosion of supplemental products. Well, 2008 is where this really comes to fruition. So From the Vault starts. Um, From the Vault was the brainchild of Mark Purvis, one of the Magic, now he's a Magic brand director. Um, and so basically, it's all about sort of... Um, trying. Different products are, are showing off different things. This is really showing off of the collectability of Magic. A lot of the... Every year, there's a different uh, theme to it. Uh, we started with dragons. Um, and we really bounced around, did a lot of different themes. I was actually involved in From the Vault Dragons. I actually uh, had my hand in the first couple From the Vaults. I, uh, I would actually lead some of the later ones. This one I did not lead. Um, but I was involved in it. Um, and, and, and the sort of the making of it, working with Purvis and stuff. Okay, next, September 22nd was Master Editions 2. This was a set that was released only on Magic Online, and we were just trying to get some of the older cards that did not exist on Magic Online onto Magic Online. And so what we did is we made a set that you could draft. It was a fun draft experience, but that gave access to older cards. Now, I, don't remember, I don't remember which cards this had, but it definitely was giving people access to some older things that they, had, they didn't have before. Okay, September 27th was the pre-release. October 3rd was the release of Shards of Alara. Okay, Shards of Alara had 249 cards, 101 commons, 60 uncommons, 53 rares, 15 mythic rares, 20, 20 land. So 249 for a while. This will become the standard of large sets for a while. We introduced the mythics. Um, the, uh, 
The interesting thing about it, by the way, is, I mean, we just recently changed uncommons from 60 to 80, but other than that, uh, 249, I mean, now it's 269, but 249 was the standard for quite a while for large sets. Um, we, when Magic had started, we only had three rarities, and um, everybody else around us, as they were making trading card games, had more than three rarities. And one of the things we said is, you know, we were first, we did a lot of things for other people, but that doesn't mean that other people didn't have good ideas. Um, the idea of Mythics was that we wanted to have things that occasionally showed up in less than every pack. That, you know, we wanted packs to feel extra super exciting every once in a while. And the idea was, well, you knew you got a rare, you always got a rare, but every once in a while, about one on eight on average, you got bigger than a rare, a Mythic rare. Um, and I remember one of the stories about this was um, we needed to make a new expansion symbol, a new color for it. And um, the creative team under the time Brady Dumbrith was in charge of coming up with a new symbol. And uh, I know Brady went through all sorts of different things. And in the end, he ended up trying to do something that sort of kind of looked like it was on fire. Um, and it ended up being the orange. But the, the orange was inspired by sort of a fiery look, which is where it came from. Anyway, Shards of Alara... Um, was a multicolor set. Oh, the set was led by Bill Rose, our VP, uh, and it was uh, the development was led by Devin Lowe. Um, so the set was definitely trying to do something. Uh, Bill wanted to create a three-color multicolor set, um, and one that would sort of adapt over time. And so uh, the creative came up with the idea of five worlds that were each devoid of two colors. So what would a world be like uh, for each of the five colors? There's a world in which they had their allies and not their enemies. What was it like? And so white was centered in Bant. Blue was centered in Esper. Black was centered in Grixis. Red was centered in Jund. And green was centered in Naya. And so each world had its own sort of design. We had broken up the different design teams. Uh, I had led the Esper world. I was on the Naya world and on the Bant world. Um, so each world came up with its own thing. Uh, the Bant world had Exalted, which is a mechanic where... Uh, if only one creature attacks, all the exalted creatures helps boost that creature. Um, uh, let's see. Um, Esper had an artifact theme. All the creatures were artifact creatures, and it introduced colored artifacts and a lot of artifact matter stuff. Um, Grixis was about um, Unearth, which was a variant of flashback for, for creatures. It allowed creatures to come out of the graveyard for a turn attack, and then they got exiled. Um, Jund had Devour, which were creatures that, as you played them, you could sacrifice other creatures to help them get bigger. And then green had an unnamed mechanic uh, that was sort of a five-power matter mechanic. Um, uh, we recently did Ferocious in Concentrator that was similar. Uh, the way we used it's a little bit different, but a similar idea of rewarding you for having bigger creatures. Um, also, their cycling was brought back. So cycling was also a mechanic that showed up in all, in all the different shards. Um, but anyway, this was inter- us introducing the shards and... Um, it was definitely a very complex design. There are a lot of moving pieces. Um, but I, I think the five worlds we made were pretty cool, and we gave defining names for all the shards that people still use to this day. Um, you know, Jun, for example. You hear Jun tossed around all the time in deck, in deck, especially in modern. Okay. October 31st, Halloween through November 2nd, Pro Tour Berlin. It was an extended Pro Tour, where Louise Scott Vargas of the United States defeats Matej Zakaj? Zakaj? I apologize if I'm mingling your name. Uh, so Luis got, Luis got Vargas uh, in the Hall of Fame, although he was not in the Hall of Fame at the time he won this. Um, but anyway, he is one of, one of the greats. Obviously, he's in the Hall of Fame. He also has become um, 
he does commentary now. He does a lot of writing. Um, you know, he's definitely a, one of the biggest personalities as far as pro players that have connected uh, with the audience. And he's much beloved, and uh, he's now doing a podcast with Marshall, uh, Limited Resources. So anyway, uh, this was his, his first uh, Pro Tour win, I, I believe. I don't, think, I don't think he's won more than once. I think this was it. Anyway, it was, it was, it's fun when you see someone who really deserves to win to finally win. Um, he's done so much for the Magic community that it was neat to watch him have his win. Okay, November 7th. November 7th was Dual Decks. Jace versus Chandra. Okay, the 2007 had introduced Dual, Je- Dual, meh, 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 had introduced Dual Decks with Goblins versus Elves, or Elves versus Goblins, I forget which way it went. Um, this was the first Planeswalker on Planeswalker Dual Deck, something that we do every year now. Uh, and we decided to start with two of our biggies, Jace and Chandra. It was Fire and Ice. Red versus blue. Um, and these were fun decks. These were very fun decks. I actually, when we do spell slinging at events, we will bring dual decks to play. And so one of the dual decks we always have is Jace for Chandra. And so I've played a lot of Jace versus Chandra in my spell slinging. Uh, and it is fun. It's very fun. The decks are actually pretty well matched up to each other. And um, although uh, I think Jace is slightly harder to play. If, if you're going to play the decks and you've never played before, I think Chandra's easier to play than Jace. At least a little more straightforward. I'm going to burn you versus knowing what to counter and all the stuff that Jace does. Um, but as I said, for example, you see from the draw, you know, dual, we, we start picking up dual decks, we introduce dual decks in Planeswalkers, um, we have from the vaults, you know, you're, you're starting to see the idea of the supplemental products. We have, obviously, it's uh, a year in which we have a fourth set, um, that, that would <laughs> change to becoming a, a full-time core set, but we'll, we'll get to that. That's, that's 2010, we haven't got there yet. Okay, finally, December 11th to the 14th, was the World Championship in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Antima, Antima Lin of Finland beat Jamie Park of the United States. Um, Jamie Park was an old-time Magic player from way back in the day, and he came back, a member for the event, um, and uh, beat it by the, by the Finn, um, Antima Lin. Um, the United States, by the way, managed to win. Michael Jacob, Sam Black, and Paul Chion of the United States defeated Australia. Um, so the U.S., the U.S., like I said, early on was dominant in the team event. And so this was one of those years where they came back and won uh, a little bit later. They, in recent years, the U.S. Has not, has not been as dominant as they were in the early years. But they still occasionally managed to win. Um, my favorite part about Worlds in Memphis, a couple stories. Um, one is that, uh, so it took place, so we had the player dinner uh, at Graceland. In fact, it was across the street. There's like, I don't know, there's, you know... Uh, um, a little convention across the street from Graceland. And then, uh, so we had our, our, it was like a plate or dinner. We had our plate or dinner. And then, as part of it, we could go, we could go on a, um, a tour of Graceland, uh, which was awesome. Uh, and so I have a lot, a lot of pictures of me and a whole bunch of Magic players uh, touring Graceland. Um, and if you've never been to Graceland, uh, it is quite, uh, uh, Elvis Presley was, was quite the interior decorator. Uh, it was, uh, Kind of a 70s explosion. And, and uh, it's, it's real neat. It's real neat. It's, one of the things that's been fun in general about all the travel for me is that um, it's just neat all the different places I, I've been able to go. Uh, I love the fact that, like, right, I can go to the World Championship and, oh, by the way, hey, I have a chance to see Graceland, which I'd never seen before. Um, in fact, I'd never been in Memphis before. This is my first time in Memphis. Um, and, uh, oh, another story from this, from this event is... Um, Richard Garfield uh, was brought to this event to spell swinging, and so he made his own deck, 
Um, he made a deck with what? What did he call it? He called it um, what was his mechanic called? Ah, uh, Drek or something. The idea was he had cards that did nothing, and he had means using his deck to shuffle those cards into your deck, so that occasionally you would draw. Oh, Gunk! I think he called it Gunk. Um, so you would draw Gunk, so it did nothing. Um, and the interesting thing was the. Richard's deck inspired me to come up with a mechanic that I really thought was an interesting mechanic, and I tried to use in Avison Restored, um, but the development team thought it was a little too out there, and we they ended up asking us to pull it. So we haven't yet made it. It's a mechanic we called Forbidden. Uh, I've never said what it does. I'm not going to say now, because in my heart of hearts, I, I think maybe I can rework it. Uh, it, it's a, it is one of the mechanics that I love. I love coming up with mechanics. Uh, where you just do something that goes, you can't do that. He goes, I'm going to do it. And uh, now maybe I maybe it's a little too much. You can't do this, but uh, I there's a German. I mean, Richard. One of the things that's fun, by the way, just interacting with Richard, working with Richard, having Richard on teams, or even just meeting up with Richard at Worlds. Like one of the fun things about Worlds for me for a long time was Richard used to always go to Worlds. In fact, um, I hold the record right now for attending the most Worlds. I've been to every single World Championships but one. Uh, Rome, I missed, unfortunately. Um, but uh, Richard, for a while, went to every one as well. And so, um, in fact, Richard and I were tied for a while with the record. And then finally, Richard uh, missed some of the more recent worlds. And uh, I, I pulled ahead. But uh, it's, I always love going to worlds meeting up with Richard. Um, I think Memphis might also have been... Um, uh, we played a whole bunch of werewolf games. So, for those who have never played werewolf, werewolf is a game where you sit around... And two people are a werewolf, and everybody else are villagers, and you're trying to figure out who the werewolf is. And then after, every so often, it's nighttime, and the werewolves get to kill somebody. And so the idea is the humans are trying to figure out which one of the werewolves before the werewolves kill all the humans. Um, and so I remember in Memphis, I played werewolf with Richard and his daughter, Terry. And Terry and I were the werewolves. Um, and we, we, we played really well. We, all, we would have won the whole game. I made one small mistake at the end because I was just tired because it was really late. Um, and other than that one small mistake at the end, we would have won. In fact, logist- uh, like logically, we'd won if I had just if I wasn't so tired and just played straight up. Um, we had the numbers to, to do what we needed to win. Um, but anyway, somehow that weekend, every time I played werewolf, I was always the werewolf, um, and people started just assuming I was the werewolf because I was always the werewolf. And it's very hard to win werewolf when everyone just assumes from the start you're the werewolf. Um, but anyway. Uh, it is fun. One of the things that I like with Richard is it's fun playing other games with Richard. Um, I, one of the great joys of my time uh, at Wizards has been uh, having to get a chance to know Richard, uh, especially in the early days, obviously, when he was working full-time at Wizards, uh, and I was a single man who could spend every evening sitting playing games. Richard introduced me to so many games. There's so many games I learned to play by uh, being taught by Richard how to play them. Uh, and it's just very cool. You know, Richard, for example, taught us how to play a lot of German games back before German games were a thing. Like, they would be in German, and Richard would have to explain how the rules worked because all the rules were in German. Um, but anyway, I'm watching my clock here. Uh, I, because I left for my daughter's school, I, uh, I got here a smidgen early, so I'm, I'm actually just parking now. But anyway, I'll give you a few, a few extra minutes here to, to get your full drive to work. Um, so anyway, 2008 was a very interesting year. Like I said, it is, in some ways, it is, it is a year that really shows the future. We see the two-block f- format that would obviously have a huge impact on the future to come. Um, we see the beginning of 
You know, it's from the vault shows up for the first time. The first Planeswalkers dual deck shows up. Um, we're, 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 this is the first year where we're, I mean, I guess we had made a fourth set every year for many years, but we, this is the first year where we're like, this is just what we do now. We are always going to have a fourth set. Now, obviously, when we get to 2010, what that fourth set would be would change in a second, um, but we definitely were in that mindset. And uh, the, the other thing, like I said, this is the begin of, uh, Shadowmore is the begin of my, my uh, reign of lead designs, uh, just continuously. Um, it, it, it is interesting. Like I said, I look, I look back in 2008, and there's... Um, we made some mistakes. Like, it's funny, because uh, definitely a lot of New World Order grew out of this year. Um, in fact, I didn't even mention that. Shards of Alara was the first set that made use of New World Order. Now, we, we retrofitted it. I would actually say that probably an actual... Um, I mean, I, well, I, but it's still in 2008. So in 2008 is the first set that even has any New World Order influence happens, which is Shards of Alara. We had come up with it after a lot of the work had been done, but during development, not during design, but during development, we retrofitted a bunch of New World Order stuff to it. So, so 2008 is the first year of New World Order. 2009 will be the first year of... But what you'll see is um, next year is... I, I think we're on the cusp of a big change. This is the this year is the change of having more supplemental stuff. Next year, uh, Magic 2010 actually comes out in 2009, um, and New World Order really starts uh, in force. And so, 2009 is a very transformative year. So we're kind of setting ourselves up. We this is a year of lessons, a year of learning, a year of starting to roll out supplemental products. But we are sort of leading up to one of our most transformative years, which will be 2009. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed a little peek into 2008, but I am in my parking spot, so we all know what that means. It's time to end my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. Talk to you guys next time.